Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine, where we take a look inside an author's working day. This week, we're chatting to Emma Bamford, who is a journalist, a memoirist, and she's just published her debut novel called Deep Water. We talk about why she's moved house with a new writing space in mind. Also, how she found the change to full-time writing from writing around her job she's now doing it all the time and how that has affected her motivation and you can hear how her plot developed significantly along the way and the characters changed actually some of one of the protagonists um changed like his name changed his job changed even what he looked like changed as i got kind of a, a better understanding that it was a thriller i was writing because to begin with i didn't know that i just knew that i had this two people and I wanted them to go to this island by sailing boat and then um, encounter difficulties when they were there. There is more with Emma Bamford in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome along to the show. This is Writer's Routine, where we take a sneak peek inside an author's working day, finding out where, when... And how they work, how they take that idea, that morsel, that nubbin of an idea and work on it, plot it out, develop it into a book that you can now buy on the shelves. My name is Dan Simpson. Thank you so much for listening and finding the show. This week we're talking to Emma Bamford, who is a journalist and memoirist. Uh, She left her old life behind 10 or 15 years ago and went to Borneo with a complete stranger an experience that she wrote about in Casting Off and then followed it up with Untie the Lines. Uh, We talk about writing memoir. I've always been quite intrigued at the idea of it, the mindset of publishing a memoir, thinking that other people want to read about your experiences. What makes you think, without being critical, what makes you think they are worthy of being published? We talk about that, and Emma is very honest about it and why it happened for her. Now, after that, she's moved into fiction, publishing her debut novel. It's called Deep Water. It's all about a couple who, after a traumatic experience on a yacht, find sanctuary on a strange island, which then sucks them into its dark secrets. We talk about how challenging she found moving from memoir into writing fiction, also about how the story changed when she discovered it was actually a thriller, 
you can hear why she doesn't have a strict routine and how she structures her scene breakdowns. She runs us through that and actually how they are reverse engineered simply to help her edit. So there's a lot in this week's chat. I really hope you'll enjoy it and take away a lot that will help your writing day. And we get into it as we always do with what Emma Bamford sees in the place around her where she sits down to write. I'm uh, very lucky in that I have uh, a few places where I sit down to write. So at the moment, I am at my desk that's in my living room. And um, I'm quite a tidy person. But if you could see this desk, you wouldn't believe that for a second. Uh, It's a right tip. Um, But okay, uh, I have got my really old, just about still hanging on MacBook Air, the really little one that they don't make anymore. I've got... um, a framed print on the wall. It was a birthday present from some friends and it's like a map of the UK, Um, but it is made up of all the names of writers. So their names are placed where they lived. So yeah, so Robert Burns, for example, is in Northwest Scotland and J.R.R. Tolkien's in the middle and E. Nesbitt's right in the tip of Kent with Geoffrey Chaucer underneath. How busy is Edinburgh? I mean, almost every author under the sun has come from Edinburgh at some point. So it must just be a huge map of that. Yeah, it's quite clever. So they make um, the name smaller where you've got more um, more writers and then they, they stretch the um, typeface in the, in the quieter spots. I think they might have taken artistic license in some places, you know, like maybe if a writer once visited there. Okay. Um, amazing. So we've got your, your old, uh, barely hanging on MacBook Air. You've got the map. What else is around you? Okay. I have got um, a big A4 notebook. Um, I have got a printout of uh, a running order of scenes for the new novel that I'm working on at the moment. And that's scribbled all over. I've got a pot of pens um, with highlighters in. I do a lot of colour coding both um, on printouts and, um, you know, on digital files. I've got a proof of a book called Like a Sister by a writer called Kelly Garrett that's publishing in November, which is really good. Um, Obviously, one of the really cool things about being an author is you get sent um, books to read and endorse. And that's one that I um, need to send my mini review in for. Um, I have got a ring light and a microphone um, because it's not like the days of Roald Dahl, I don't think, where you could lock yourself away in a shed and with your notebook. And and that's what being a writer was. You know, there's podcasts to do and and, um, YouTube interviews and things like that. Um, I've got a bookcase next to me and that's full of everything from I think like my first dictionary that I got with my Griffin Savers bank account when I was about 10 um, to I've got a lot of writing guides like Stephen King and John Mullen and David Lodge. Um, I've got a framed picture of an African woman that I bought in Senegal when I was on holiday and then January. And I've got a ton of boxes because I'm moving house soon and I've started packing up already and they're just kind of building up and around me and, and towering over me. I've got a few questions. Uh, on the, the the kind of map that you've got of your scenes that you said, you, you said that was a printout, right? Kind of a plan. Um 
<clears throat> what form is it in and how detailed is it? I, I don't I know this is a work in progress, but could you just uh, without spoiling, just like, I don't know, go to scene 17 and uh, just read me like uh, an example of how thoroughly you are plotting it at this point? Yeah, uh, I'll go from the beginning because then um, I won't be giving too much away. So I've got 36 chapters. It's a breakdown of chapters. Um, and for example, I open um, with a flash forward. Um, I'm not calling it prologue though. <clears throat> so we'll just stick flash forward. And that says, number one, Maddie sees Scott in the street and follows him to a club. So that's all that says for that one. Um, but then as I go down to say chapter seven, I have one, two, three, four, five, six lines of text there so I fleshed out that scene a little bit more so they they vary I'm just trying to get like the main beats of the plot there and it helps me um because I'm revising at the moment and it helps me when I um you know quickly pin down in what scene it was that something happened and I have it digitally as well so I can I can search for a keyword in the text so so that's after the fact then if you're revising that novel uh, how thoroughly was it built up before you started writing? The novel um, was, well, it was basically just a really loose concept and um, I had a setting, although the settings changed. I had three characters and I knew the kind of turning point twist, um, but I didn't know what the ending was going to be. And I didn't really know any much about these people at all. And, um, and then I just started writing. And that was, that was similar with my first novel. I had a setting, had an idea of a couple of characters. Um, I knew a big thing that wanted to happen to them. And then I just um, found out the rest as I went, really. So it's interesting that you're reverse engineering the, the, the plot. Uh, many people, many authors might sit there and, and do what you've done, have that map of chapters, all 36 of them, before they started writing. Whereas you're doing it just to help you keep track of what you've already done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd love to be a plotter. You know how people say they fall into camps of plotters or pantsers. Um, but I find that so much like richness and, I don't know, metaphor and symbols and, and characters just do surprising things when I'm writing them. So um, I think it'd be a lot more efficient <laughs> if I could plot it all out and then stick to that and go through <clears throat> and do this scene today and this scene tomorrow and all the way to the end. Um, but what I'm discovering is that I can't work like that. I just have to have a go. And then it means that a lot of the first draft gets ripped up. A lot of the second draft gets ripped up as well. But each time I kind of thinking think of it as like building a wall in that um, my first draft, my really rough draft, is just sticking the bricks down. And then on the second draft, that might be like, I don't know, adding a top. I'm not a builder, so I don't know what the words are, but, you know, like a coping stone or something like that. And then as I get into more drafts further and further, then I start doing things like maybe rendering the wall and painting it and, and kind of finishing it off and making it look nice. Uh, you also mentioned your moving house. Uh, how much have you thought about? Oh, I don't know. Even if you're, uh, uh, can't, if you're, if you're, if you can do this, uh, how much have you thought about the writing space 
in your new place? Well, I've chosen this house because I can have my own office, which I'm really excited about. I mean, I'm obviously really, really lucky to be in a position to be able to do that. Um, but it is, if it all goes through, it's a house and it'll have um, three windows, so lots of light and it's like off the hallway. So nobody would be walking through the house um, and disturbing me. So room for a sofa so I can have creative thinking time, aka naps in the afternoon. Um, yeah, so I'm really looking forward to that. That's that's going to be brilliant. At the moment, I do a lot of writing with a, a lap desk. I don't know if you've come across these. Yeah, I've, I've seen them, yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's very good for your posture, but it is quite good when I'm not in the mood to write. It kind of tricks me. I can trick myself and be like, well, you just go and sit on the sofa and you just take the lap desk with you and the little laptop and, you know, it's not that serious. You're just going to play around. So that's been quite a useful tool. Had you looked around many places and immediately dismissed them because the the office was not sufficient for you? Yeah, I think, well... Obviously, everything's changed, hasn't it, in the past couple of years and British houses um, a, 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 tend to be quite small. Um, I live in a terrace house at the moment and um, and a lot of people, they're not geared up for working from home really, are they? Um, and so a lot of people sort of carve out space where they are. Like I've said, I've got, I'm against like in a corner of my living room um, and a lot of houses, I think people turn the, the little box room into an office but I kind of think, um, as I've got the choice, because this is what I do, you know, I'm writing and working from home full time. I'd like to have a nice, a bigger space in which to do that. Although I remember when I was reading Stephen King's On Writing, um, he gave the really famous example of of how he wrote his first novel. So he lived in a trailer and there was a shelf above the washing machine and that's where he wrote his first book. And then his advice is always, isn't it, to sit facing a wall, not not a window or a view. I think he was also doing copious amounts of cocaine, so I don't know how, 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 <laughs> how much you need to align yourself to that. Um, listen, the show is writer's routine, Emma, so take us through yours. The moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed on a day when you are sat down to write, uh, how does the whole thing look? Right, it's going to be really embarrassing because I really don't have a routine. Um, but what I can do is tell you what I did yesterday yeah, let's do that. Fine. Brilliant. The, the, the point is that not everyone has a normal, not everyone has a routine. People do what they want. So yeah, take me through yesterday. Yeah, I'm a little bit ashamed. Um, so I wake up about half half seven or eight o'clock and um, it takes me a while to come round, um, go downstairs, feed the cat, make a cup of tea, um, go back to bed and maybe just read for a bit or go through social media, just sort of waking up. And then I come down, um, have a late breakfast. And then every day I say to myself, right, this is going to be the day that you sit down at your computer. I've kind of learned that I'm not very good at, at, at writing before 11 o'clock in the morning. I think it takes time for my brain to get going. Um, but yesterday, for example, I probably didn't start until about half past four in the afternoon. Um, I did some um, social media um, because I've got a book about to come out. So um, kind of hitting the promo on that. And then had some lunch, basically spend the whole day feeling guilty. And then at four o'clock, um, sat 
down. And yesterday I started on the sofa with the lap desk and the laptop and then my scene by scene printout, my notebook and my printout of the previous draft with me. Um, and then I moved to the desk and I found that when I, when I moved to the desk, um, it really, you know, I got into the zone and then I worked. Yeah, I wrote, I redrafted a whole chapter yesterday. So my routine is not really a routine. It's more of a um, making myself do it. But I heard that Ian Rankin, I listened to him give a talk once and he often doesn't start until six or seven in the evening. So I guess you just have to like find what works for you. Um, one thing that I do do is like a little ritual is I make a playlist for the book that I'm writing. And I find that if I just put that, it's on Spotify, I have the Spotify where you don't have the ads. And I just play that on repeat. I mean, if anybody else is in the house, it must drive them potty, just hearing the same songs over and over and over for hours. Um, but for me, it helps me to get kind of like a movie soundtrack. So it helps me to get into the zone. What defines uh, whether a song can go on the playlist for this particular book or not? Um, so sometimes it's songs that I already know and sometimes it's something that Spotify has you know, suggested. So for this book, it's quite... Um, I'd say orchestral music, like soundtracky. So nothing, no like 80s power ballads or something that I want to, to sing along to and dance along to. It's got to be kind of sort of background music. Um, and some of it is maybe piano instrumental type things. Um, and yeah, they're just either the lyrics or the feeling of the music um, seems to chime with the the vibe of the of the novel that I'm writing. If you've got a job that needs doing, give it to a busy person. Because maybe four years ago, I was working on deep water. I had a full time job in London. I had a daily commute of about four to four and a half hours, um, and I would get up, get on the early train, write on the train, change trains right on the second train, get to work, do my job in the morning, at lunchtime, go to the library, do 40 minutes in the library, go back to my job in the afternoon and write a bit on the train on the way home as well. Um, and now I think I'm probably doing the same amount of work, um, but I've got a whole day to spread it out over. Um, so it's just pure laziness, really. Do you prefer the fact you're in this quite fortunate position now where you can leisurely write throughout the day? You mentioned kind of feeling guilty that you weren't getting around to it uh, earlier on. Uh, do, you, do you prefer this way of working or when you were massively rushed doing 50,000 things a day? Um, I think you always think the grass is greener on the other side, don't you? Um, I... That's a really hard question to answer. I think I'm aware that I'm really lucky and there are brilliant benefits to being effectively a full-time writer in um, that you can take time out of your day to do other things or, you know, I can do a podcast like this. I'm not having to ask my boss, is it okay if I, I take a break during the working day or take half-day holiday or something um, to record a podcast? Um, 
Yeah, I think really it comes down to, because I know other writers who are full-time writers and they're much better at cracking on with it than I am. Um, I think it's, I suffer from writer's block and I think it's related to that. I think it's um, to do with like the fear. It's not even a fear of the blank page. It's a f- sort of a fear of, will it be any good? Um, is it going to be ridiculed? Um you know, that kind of thing. Stuff that writers have been grappling with for a really long time. How do you deal with that when that anxiety is there? The worry that, oh, uh, I've got to do it all over again. Uh, are they going to like this one as much as they liked the previous? What do you what do you tell yourself to, to push through? Um, I, well, first of all, have to try and sort of acknowledge that that is just an anxious voice in my head. Um, telling me those things. Um, also, if I don't produce a second book or a third book or a fourth book, um, then there isn't going to be anything for anybody to to potentially ridicule or, or not, you know. Um, I do find that the best way is to just um, sit down and go through what I worked on the day before. So usually when I do sit down, I'll go back and look at, and this is whether I'm I'm writing from scratch on like first draft or whatever, or if I'm redrafting, I'll look at what I did yesterday and I'll read through that and I'll tinker with it a little bit, like really light editing, maybe like adjusting a sentence or changing a word or spotting that there's a repeated word or something like that. And eventually I'll get into the story and and then that's when I find that I can kind of pick up and um, and get going from there. At that point, so yesterday when you got to work at about 4.30, you said, I would really struggle with uh, kind of willing myself to do it, like switching the creativity, switching the flow on. So I know for me, I work better with a routine because it's almost like I've trained my brain to think, oh, okay, at nine o'clock every day, uh, I need to be ready to work here. How good are you at being a bit free forming with it and deciding at for oh you know what I'm going to get to work now how how long does it take you to kick into gear at that point well i think um that same kind of anxiety that that stops me from cracking on with it in the first place is also the that that anxiety makes me get on with it because i think i can't go <clears throat> i can't go to bed tonight having done nothing because um well yeah i'd be ashamed it'd be a waste of a day um so, yeah, I just, I get, I guess, I mean, sometimes I can write until midnight. I'm not, I don't think of myself as a night owl, but in, um, in, I do a bit of freelance journalism now for a newspaper and that means working in the evening. So we don't start, um, a shift until three o'clock and then we work until 10 o'clock at night. So maybe it's just that, that my body's got used to that rhythm even, and perhaps that's even why I can't get going. Um, before 11 o'clock in the morning. I probably ought to try harder at giving myself a routine. I think it might be more productive if I did. You have to give me your tips. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. We'll be back with more from Emma in just a sec. I'd like to quickly point you towards our Patreon page, uh, if you can. If you're enjoying the show, if you like what we bring you, if you like these episodes that we put out as often as we can with all different types of writers, if you're learning anything, Please support the show, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. It is a sole one-man operation, as you can tell by my slightly slack admin and social media skills, I would say. Uh, It's just me doing this, sorting out the interviews, reading the books when I can, uh, researching the interviews, doing them, editing them, getting it out there, doing everything that comes with that is a lot of work. Uh, And if you would like to support us, do it on the Patreon. It's the easiest way. Just a couple of dollars a month helps us carry on. It helps us keep bringing you these chats as as often as possible. Chats with some of the best writers around. For that, you get our unending thanks. As always, of course, you also get merch. There is bonus content and there is a way for your book to sponsor this show. You saw that happen if you listened to last week's episode. If you would like your book to do that, if you think it deserves more praise than perhaps it's gotten, I know it's a tough, tough marketing world out there. You can let me plug away. Let me do that for you. Just support the show. Help us keep bringing you these chats as often as possible at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back into it then with Emma Bamford, journalist, memoirist, and now novelist talking about her new fiction, Deep Water. We talk about the book, how challenging she felt moving into the world of fiction from memoir writing, having to invent an idea rather than just tell her own story. And we pick things up, chatting about what she does when the words aren't coming out, when she's suffering from writer's block. How does she try and grease the cogs? I find walking's really good for plotting. I find um, listening to podcasts, actually, podcasts and interviews with other writers or um, listening to short stories while I'm walking sort of gets, have creative sparks and then I'll be walking along and then I'll stop and I'll get my phone out and I'll write something in the notes mode and then I'll walk a bit more and then I'll stop and I'll, I'll write a bit more after that. Yeah, drink quite a lot of tea, alternate between tea and coffee, although some of it has to be decaf, otherwise I'd just have the jitters too badly. Um yeah, the playlist, but really um, sometimes it's just about putting bad words down, just anything, just write, and then knowing that can go back later and sort it out. I'd like to talk about your memoirs, if that's okay, just for a little bit before we get into deep water. <clears throat> I'm always curious 
and please don't take offense at this. I'm always curious where someone who isn't like a no known celebrity writes a memoir. So at what point in your experience when you went off to Borneo, what, what, at what point did you think, oh, okay, this might make a good memoir. Maybe people will want to buy this. Um, I was, so I was working as a journalist at the independent and I told my colleagues that I was doing this. I was going to go off, uh, traveling and sailing around the world. And it was kind of open-ended. I didn't know. I thought I might be away for a year. I didn't really know where I'd end up or what exactly I'd be doing. And one of my colleagues, um, Mike McCarthy, he was the environment editor of the independent. He said, Oh, it sounds like there's a book in that you could do like, a, like a nonfiction book about, um, visiting various islands by sailing boat. And it hadn't really occurred to me to, to think, oh, I, I could could write a book about it. Um, but I um, somebody else at work put me in touch with an agent and I spoke to him and he said, oh, yeah, it sounds like, it sounds like there might be something from it. Just go away, have a good time and, you know, see what happens. Um, and then when I was away, I was – because it was 12 years ago um, – and there was uh, no phone signal in a lot of the places that we were. It was just a lot harder to keep in touch with people back home than it is these days. There's no video calling or anything like that. I mean, it was the very first smartphones. Um, so I started keeping a blog when I was away and I'd just write a bit about where I'd been and, and the experiences that I'd had. And then... Um, it was kind of a merging of those two things. Someone saying to me, oh, you can make a book of this. And then me having done the blog, I thought, well, why don't I play around um, seeing if those blog entries can become um, chapters in a book. And that's what I did. And I um, spent, I think, about six weeks pulling that together. It wasn't a complete book. And then I went to a book launch of um, a sailor that I knew and um, – if you've been to book launches, um, you'll know that the kind of there's, there's free drinks there and snacks and things. Everyone stands around talking and there's some speeches. And um, I got a bit tipsy. Well, I got a bit of Dutch courage, let's say, on the uh, on the white wine that was being given out. And I thought, right, I'm just going to go over to um, to his editor and tell her that I've been away. This is a sailing imprint. So all the books they published were to do with sailing. Tell her what I've been up to and see if she thinks that there might be a book in it. And she's so lovely. Her name's Liz Moulton and she's at Bloomsbury. And um, and she said, oh yeah, why don't you send me what you've got? So I left that party on such a high and I did send her what I had. Um, and it was about, probably about 50,000 words. And she wrote back after a month or so and said, oh, um, you know, it's not, it just reads a bit like a diary. I did this and I did this and I did this. There's no narrative arc to it. Um, can't really publish it as it is now. And I, and I was like, okay, well, thank you for, for reading it. And she said, well, if you did want to redraft it, I'll, I'll, um, I'll read it again. And I knew that that, I mean, I didn't really know anything about book publishing at all, but I knew that an offer like that was probably, you know, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Um, so I, um, Googled what's a narrative arc, and I came through. It came up with a kind of a through line. So quite similar to writing a novel, really. You've got to have character development, even though that character is you. And even though we don't think of our lives as, I mean, we don't live our lives in, in to a plot structure or anything like that. But if when you're looking back on it retrospectively, um, you you can choose 
certain scenes and stories that will fit uh, and revelations that will fit uh, a narrative arc. So, yeah, I reworked it and sent it to her and then they published it. Um, <laughs> very quickly, I always, I, I do wonder if editors enjoy and agents enjoy going to book launches because they know that uh, like a lot of prospective writers will might have a little Dutch courage from the right white wine and they'll, they'll just be, they'll be their ear wagged off all night. Um, uh, how was it then going back and writing the kind of redrafting as you were advised to do? How was that finding a message, finding a point, finding a through line to the story after the fact like you've you've gone you've done it and then you're trying to find out the purpose of why you've done it months later to get it published how how was that um i think actually that process that i went through with that first memoir is a process that i still go through now with these novels um i'm i'm aware with novel writing that um you know i've got to make everything up Whereas with uh, a memoir or a travelogue, it is based on on what I've what I've done, what's happened to me. Um, but it's still that kind of curating of um, of things that have happened before, and then working towards this endpoint, this you know ending in a novel. Or I still had to find an an ending in casting off. When you talk about in novels, when you read all the craft books, talk about a character journey. Well, with that novel, because I was sailing around the world, I was like literally having a character journey. So it's kind of structured it around the, the, the places that I'd been, but also how I'd, um, sounds cheesy, but how I'd grown as a person or what I'd learnt, which um, it does follow the traditional kind of narrative structure of a, of a novel in that way. And that has led to your your, your debut novel, which is Deep Water. Uh, tell us about the first moment that the idea for this story came into your head. I can, I can tell you that exactly, actually. I was living on a boat and we were, um, I was with five other people and we were at anchor off an island in the Andaman Islands. Now they're a chain of largely uninhabited islands um, off the coast, about probably about 400 miles off the coast of Thailand in the Indian Ocean. They belong to India. And um, we'd got permission to sail around these islands for a month. And, you know, I was going there and I'm like, oh my God, I've never been to an uninhabited island before. It's going to be amazing. I mean, how beautiful, how special, how lucky I am to be able to go and do this. And then we were at anchor. And yeah, it is beautiful and amazing and spectacular, um, but there's not much to do. And um, something went wrong with our boat, like something that meant that we we had trouble steering it and we had to get it fixed. And um, also, it there was nowhere to get drinking water. We didn't have a water maker on this boat, so we used to, we would fill it up with water and then we would top it up with rainwater. But because we were away for a month, um, there was nowhere to get more drinking water and it wasn't due to rain. So we had to really ration our um, water resources, like say, okay, everyone's got this much, this many litres a day for cooking food, drinking, um, showering and um, laundry. And I think it was it was something like 
I don't know, three or four litres per person per day, which is nothing when you think like how much a bathtub holds or even a sink. Um, so I became kind of aware of um, the beauty of places like that, but also the vulnerability that comes along with them. And so that's basically where the premise for deep water came from, that, that pe- the idea that people could could sail off looking for paradise and then find themselves... Um, excuse the pun, out of their depth quite quickly. And, and from that, you then make a a plot, like a, a thrilling novel about two characters who have had a traumatic experience and they find themselves on this island. Um, like, I'm often, where does that come from? Because you've had this experience when you're on a boat and you think this might be interesting to write about, but then you've got to formulate a plot that will make a thrilling novel. How did you go about doing that? Took me lots and lots of drafts, and the characters changed. Actually, some of one of the protagonists um, changed, like his name changed, his job changed, even what he looked like changed. As I got a, kind of a, a better understanding that it was a thriller I was writing, because to begin with, I didn't know that. I just knew that I had this two people, and I wanted them to go to this island by sailing boat and then um, encounter difficulties when they were there. Um, I think originally. I, I just knew that I wanted it to be a couple. I wanted to write about um, how the the effects of being like in a claustrophobic small boat might um, affect a relationship, even a strong one, because their relationship is, is a strong one at the start of the novel. Um, and I knew that I wanted to bring in a really mixed um, bunch of other characters. So I, there are only, I think, seven people on my island Amarante, but I wanted them to come from all over the world and be very different kinds of people with different backgrounds. Um, because when I was sailing, that's what I met. You know, I met people from uh, countries that I'd never been to and people with really mixed life stories and experiences. Um, and I knew that I wanted an antagonist and I knew that I wanted a best friend. So I kind of created this um, this cast of characters and then basically set them off to, to play on the island and to start to make bad decisions and get themselves into trouble. I don't want this to be a, a process of then what happened, but it's, I'm just intrigued that your, your novel has ended up being something slightly different to what it started as being. When did you realise that maybe things needed to change to make a more... Uh, to, well, to make that through line of plot. So you've got the thread of uh, what these two characters are doing. Yeah. So the way that Deep Water has been published is, is there's a narrative frame around the main story. So most of the book takes place on the island of Amarante. Um, but around that, um, there's another character and he is called Captain Tenku and he's the captain of a naval ship. And um, he and that frame... So that creates like a flash forward right at the beginning of the novel. And then we jump back in time to um, meeting the characters, Virginie and Jake, who are going to the island and everything that happens on the island. And then um, then it's all kind of like emerging together in the final part of the book. So Captain Tenku, um, we sort of time-wise, we catch up with ourselves and Tenku and Virginie um, are together, <clears throat> excuse me, in scenes. And then it all... Um, continues uh, from there to the end. So that framework came really quite late. Um, I worked on this book. I first had the idea when I was traveling. So 
12 now, it's 12 years ago. Um, but I didn't, I, I wrote the memoirs first and then I probably started working on Deepwater uh, maybe five years ago. Um, so for, let's say for three years of that, there wasn't this thriller framework. It was more like a survival story. Um, and I shared the draft with people and I just really listened to people's feedback. And then um, I'm a big believer in your, in the, your you know, subconscious is working when you're writing. And then this whole new character of Captain Tenku just just appeared and this idea for this this framework to make it more of a thriller because it it's not um it's not who done it it's um i hope and what i aimed for is that people would would ask like what's happened and why and coming up with him um enabled me to put that question into um into readers minds what what you would professionally written before this was uh, articles uh, as a journalist and then moving into writing memoir. What was it like writing fiction after doing that? Did did one affect the other? Did you find it challenging at all? I found it really challenging because I've got to make it all up for a start. Um, But also in... um, Say in newspaper journalism, for example, if you're writing news, there's a really um, uh, like a a strict way of doing it. It's a method. You learn it um, when you do your journalism training and then you use it all the way through your career. And it's like like a pyramid structure to a news article. Um, and particularly if you're writing for a tabloid, everything's really short and it's, it's all facts. It's facts that are backed up by, um, you know, comments and quotes to prove that the facts are true. Um, and writing fiction is nothing like that. So although it was, it's a case of putting words down on the page, you've, you've got this kind of freedom, um, and also, the chance to uh, describe things, create characters, create dialogue, have um, use metaphors and symbols and uh, what I call omens, like that's, um, I guess, clues that, that hopefully will resonate with the reader, if not not strictly a clue, but makes them think, oh, that's a bit ominous, what's going to happen um, in the future, there's a lot of pointing forwards and backwards. Um, so yeah, apart from my typing skills, which aren't exactly brilliant, I make a lot of typos. Um, there's not that much correlation between the two. Uh, and moving into your well, your second novel now that you mentioned you are editing. How did you find that the, the process of writing your first one uh, affected the way you wrote your second? How much did you learn between the two? Um, I learned. Um, that I probably need to be more efficient um, because I uh, got less time. Only got only had two years to write uh, the second one rather than five years, which was for the first one. Um, but it, definitely, writing Deep Water gave me uh, a clearer idea of the structure and um, for, of a thriller <clears throat> and the main things that I need to be aiming for. Um, I think my writing style has changed. I think um, through through that, my, I think my basic process is probably the same, but the writing is a bit different. Um, and it's kind of like a gift and a curse because um, I know I've done it once, 
So there's no reason why I can't do it again, right? But at the same time, you're thinking, oh, maybe that was just the one go. Maybe, you know, my one shot, uh, maybe I can't pull it off this time. So it's like a constant balance or or conversation um, with it, with myself to try and, and get, and accept, right, well, well, I am doing it and I've got to do it. So so let's just push on and, and try and make it the best that it can be in the time that I've got available. And that's it. Thank you so much to Emma Bamford for coming on the show. You can pick up a copy of her brand new book, Deep Water, right now, wherever you get your books from. Now, next week, we're chatting to Andrew Wright, uh, who's a brilliantly individual fellow, I would say. He writes for BBC Country Farm magazine. He's written factual books about walking. He runs a huge YouTube and TV channel all around, all about walks around Britain. Uh, he is a doer. He's got his YouTube show uh, widely publicised. It's on TV as well. And now he's self-published fiction. And it's writing what you know. It's called The Walker Mysteries. Uh, It's a brilliant homegrown story, this one. I think you'll get a lot out of it. That's with Andrew White next week on the show. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this, you can support us at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts if that's how you listen. You can get in touch, writersroutine.com and follow us on Twitter. We are at writerspod there. And I will see you next week with Andrew White. Until then, bye. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.